book of Matthew this morning. So if you will open to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the baskets at the end of the rows. If you don't have your own Bible at home, feel free to take one home with you. It's our gift to you. We believe God's word um, is transformative. It's alive and active. And so we would love for you to have your own copy. But Matthew, he starts his biology of his biography of Jesus with the genealogy. I talked about this last week some and how this genealogy of Jesus, the women included in it, show us how God chooses the least of people. He chooses people with broken dreams to bring about wholeness and joy and hope. This genealogy, of course, is also a genealogy of Joseph, not just Jesus. And there's some interesting clues in this genealogy of Joseph that give us clues into his psyche and why this man could easily determine what God was telling him to do. Um, first of all, I'll just start with this. There's two genealogies of Jesus, one in Matthew and one in Luke, chapter 3. They're different very different. Um, and it's common for genealogies to have some differences. For example, Matthew's genealogy goes from Abraham to King David and then down to Joseph and Jesus. Luke's genealogy goes in reverse order. He starts with Jesus and Joseph and then goes up to David and then Abraham and then all the way up to Adam. Um, there's also some name differences and that's common in genealogies because in the Bible, you're dealing with people from different cultures, with, and a lot of them were bilingual, and so sometimes a genealogy might have an Aramaic form of the name and, or a Hebrew form, and then another one might have a Greek form of the name. So that kind of stuff is common. But if you look at Matthew and Luke's genealogies, between David and Joseph, it's just flat-out different. It's just an entirely different list of people. Matthew actually traces Joseph's genealogy from King David to David's son, King Solomon, and through Solomon's line all the way down to Joseph and Jesus. Luke goes from King David to David's son, Nathan, who is never king, and then through Nathan's line all the way down to Joseph. So how do we explain this? Well, the most straightforward explanation was given by Eusebius. He's known as the father of Christian history. He lived about 200 years after the time of Christ. And Eusebius documents that Joseph was adopted. He had two fathers. Biologically, he was from the line of King Solomon, but legally, he carried the name of Halai, who was from the line of Nathan. And if you think, well, how did Eusebius know this? I just, just think about it this way. 233 years ago, George Washington was our president. How much do historians know about George Washington's family? They don't 
they know a lot. We have letters, we have legal documents, you can go visit his home. Same thing for Eusebius. He had documentation that Joseph was adopted. And so Joseph, he is, he is the biological heir to the throne of David. Which sounds really impressive and prestigious. Like Joseph must have been a really important guy. Except he wasn't. Under the oppression of the Roman Empire, to be the heir of King David was just a joke. It was an eye roll. It was centuries of disappointment, failed leadership, broken dreams. We wouldn't be an oppression to the Romans if it wasn't for the line of David. To be David's son, the royal heir to the throne, was kind of like to be the son of Nixon or something like that, but with like... Yeah, but with like 11 corrupt generations of Nixons before you. Joseph, his lineage did not make him proud. Instead, it was this weight that he was trying to shed. And so it was probably a great relief that he had the legal name of Helai, who was not from the royal line. And instead of living in the city of David, Bethlehem, Joseph is living in this, like, podunk, backward village of about 500 people, Nazareth. And he's just trying to work an honest living as a carpenter. He's a man of few words. The Bible records none. He's like an action-speak-louder-than-words kind of guy. And the Bible tells us, like, he was righteous. He was trying very hard just to quietly follow God instead of his forefathers. That was Joseph. And he falls in love and um, gets engaged to this young lady named Mary, right? They're betrothed, which is kind of like an engagement, but more stringent. Um, Jewish betrothals could be 12 months or longer. Um, He's probably building a home for them. Mary's still with her parents. She's young. She does need to grow up a little before they're married. And she leaves for three months to go visit her cousin. And Joseph probably thinks, oh, she's going to tell him the good news, you know, of our engagement. Except she comes back pregnant. And I just... I can't imagine just the torrent of emotions in Joseph. You know, he was probably hoping she was raped, but that was not her story. And suddenly everyone just starts to look like at Joseph like he's, you know, just another immoral son of David. Let's not forget, Mary, she was old enough to be promised in marriage, but not old enough for the marriage to be consummated. Even today, we have laws about the age of consent, right? 
And everyone's just looking at Joseph suspiciously. And the reputation that he has worked so hard to try to build is shot. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. And yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Joseph just isn't like outwardly righteous, like just outwardly trying to do things to look good. Like he he really is in his heart. And so that's why he still has compassion on Mary. He could have thrown her to the wolves. But he really, in his heart, is someone who is trying to have the heart of God. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. My question is this. How did Joseph know this dream was from God? I mean, how seriously do you take your dreams? This is the first of four dreams that... Joseph has. You can read about the other three in the next chapter. But every time he has a dream and he wakes up and does something drastic, like taking Mary to be his wife, even though he's not the father. Another time it's to get up in the middle of the night and move to a foreign country. If you had a dream and an angel told you to leave that night for Mexico, would you do it? Yet this is what he does time and time again. How does he know? How does he know with that kind of certainty to take these drastic actions? And every single time he is able to lead himself and his family to peace because of it. God's path to peace is usually something we would never fathom. So how do we know? Well, I think there's five clues that are in this dream. 
that tip Joseph off that this is, you know, really from God and not just his own crazy thoughts. And I think God uses these five clues in our lives, too. So if we know them and we look for them, it will help us discern that this is what God is actually leading me to do, and it's not just my own crazy ideas, all right? So we're going to go through these five clues rather quickly. You may want to write them down. The first clue from, comes from how the angel addresses Joseph. In verse 20, it says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David. When God is directing you, the path he directs you on will redeem your past. God recognizes us by our true identities. And he does not waste your past experiences. He redeems them. In this dream, God is saying, Joseph, son of David. That's his true identity he wants to hide. He's been hiding from. Joseph, son of David, now is the time that who you truly are comes to pass. Now is the time when the promise of who you are gets fulfilled. Now is the time. Joseph, do you, do you understand what's in Mary is from the Holy Spirit? And you get to be the adoptive father of the son of the king of kings. Joseph, son of David, who better to adopt my son than you, who's been adopted and is also a son of kings? In just a couple of sentences, God takes the shame of Joseph's past and he makes it beautiful and powerful and transformative. And that's what God does with us. Any shame, past experiences, when God is calling you to something, he does not ignore those. Rather, he transforms them into something powerful and good. And he begins to reveal to you a powerful purpose for what you've already lived through. An honorable purpose for your past. So don't hide from your past. Know it and understand it because your, your past gives you indicators. There's signs that point you toward what God is preparing for you for. The next clue. When God directs you, the path requires courage. He says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Why was Joseph afraid? Because his reputation would be ruined? You know, he's probably afraid Mary wouldn't be faithful to him in the future, too. If she's not faithful right after they get engaged, I mean... But God calls us to make decisions not based on fear, but on courage. 
And so he asked Joseph to make a decision based on courage. Whenever I am contemplating a big decision, like do I take this job or not take this job, or do I move or not move, or like what school do I go to, what degree do I study, all of those kind of things, I make a motivation list. Not a pro-con list, um, but a motivation. What is my motivations for these things? What are my motivations for this? And if I see fear among those motivations, I know that rationale is not from God. Because God calls us to live out of courage and not fear. Now, this clue doesn't stand alone. Because you can make some really courageous decisions that are stupid. (sighs) All right? But when you piece this clue together with some of these other clues, it's like pieces of a puzzle coming together that you can discern what God is calling you to do. Okay, the next clue. When God directs you, the path requires unselfishness and service. We see this in what God is asking Moses to do, or I'm sorry, Joseph to do, but we see it in person after person in scripture, that when God calls them, it's a path of unselfishness and service. Guys, I want you to understand this. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. The path he calls you on will always lead to peace. It will always lead to your honor and your well-being. But it is usually an indirect path. It is not a path that directly seeks our own honor or directly seeks our well-being, but it is a path through service and sacrifice to others. And you can go through person after person uh, in the Bible and see this. Why? Because that's the path Jesus took. In Philippians 2, you read it, it spells it out so simply, but Jesus humbled himself. He became a servant. He sacrificed himself for us. And because of that, God exalted him. And that is the same pattern that God calls us to. Jesus said, the last shall be first. Among you, he who serves is the greatest. The humble shall be exalted, lifted up. Yes. God calls us to take the same path that he has taken. And I don't mean like sacrificing $100 to the TV preacher so he can bless you. (sighs) That's not, that's not a lifestyle of service and sacrifice. That's bribing God. When God calls us to something, it is usually for a lifestyle of serving others, and through that, he will bring about our peace and our well-being and our honor. The next clue. When God directs you, the path may seem impossible, But it is logical. It is logical. In this case, Mary becoming pregnant by the Holy Spirit doesn't seem possible. 
but in a strange kind of way, it fits. It fits God's past promises, including the ones spoken by Isaiah in the Old Testament. It fits Mary's character, that Joseph knew her to be honorable and righteous. It even fits the... In a way, crazy way, the rationale, I mean, if she, she was promiscuous, she probably would have come back with like a rape cover story, not a, an angel spoke to me and I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit kind of cover story, right? There's um, a clip from the movie Chronicles of Narnia, um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's one of my favorite scenes in the movie that I think just illustrates this point so beautifully. If you're not familiar with the story... There's four children. They're staying with a professor in his huge historic mansion. The youngest one, Lucy, goes through a wardrobe and finds the magical land of Narnia. Her brother Edmund follows her, but denies that Narnia exists. And so she's crying because nobody believes her. And the two older children are getting advice from the professor. Just watch this. Upset the delicate internal balance of my housekeeper. We're very sorry, sir. It won't happen again. It's our sister, sir. Lucy. The weeping girl. Yes, sir. She was upset. Hence the weeping. It's nothing. We can handle it. Oh, I can see that. She thinks she's found a magical land. In the upstairs wardrobe. Did you say? The wardrobe upstairs. Lucy thinks she was found in the forest inside. She won't stop going on about it. What was it like? Like talking to a lunatic. No, no, not her, the forest. You're not saying you believe her. You don't? But of course not. I mean, logically, it's impossible. What do they teach in schools these days? Edmund said they were only pretending. And he's usually the more truthful one, is he? No. This would be the first time. If she's not that and she's not lying, then logically, you must assume she's telling the truth. You're saying that we should just believe her? She's your sister, isn't she? You're a family. You might just try acting like one. This was Joseph's dilemma. If she is not lying and she's not mad, then she must be telling the truth. And there will be things that God asks you to do that seem impossible. But if you know his character, logically it makes sense. If you know his character that chooses the least of people. If you know his character that meets people in their suffering and can lift any shroud of darkness. If you know the character of God 
that asks people to sacrifice to find peace. That God will ask you to do things that seem impossible but fit his character. And he asks you to do things that fit his character because he is trying to form his character in you. It wasn't possible for the walls of Jericho to come down by music. But it fits the character of God to remove obstacles through worship. If we only do what's possible, we're going to live small lives. So get to know the character of God. When God directs you, the path may seem impossible, but is logically consistent with his character and with his word. That's our last point. Verse 22, it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to the son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's a quote from Isaiah, recorded in the Old Testament, which Joseph would have known. God only directs you down a path that's consistent with his word, that's consistent with His the wisdom in his word, with the directions he gives. So get to know his word. And seek counsel from people whose wisdom comes from God's word and not from themselves. So to conclude, when you're trying to discern, you know, what should I do? What is God's best path for me? Look for these five clues. Ask yourself, does this path recognize my past and redeem it? Does it incorporate what I've experienced and put that experience to good use? Second, ask yourself, does this require courage? Or am I considering it because I'm afraid? Third, ask yourself, does this path require unselfishness? Is it going to build in me a lifestyle of service? Fourth, is this path, even if it seems impossible, our church planning adventure was impossible. (laughs) Even if it seems impossible, is it logical? Does it fit the character of God? Does it fit who God is creating me to be? Does it form the character of God in me? And lastly, Is this path consistent with God's advice in his word, the Bible? Once you start piecing these clues together, God's will and direction for your life will become so much more clear. I know I've cited James 1.5 to you before. Um, It's one of my favorite passages, but it says, If anyone lacks wisdom, he should come to God who gives generously to all without finding fault. But it goes on and says that when God gives us an answer, we must believe and not doubt. God wants to speak to you. He wants 
to direct you and lead you to peace. But we need to be seeking him and knowing what clues to look for. I want to close in prayer. Um, And the worship team, you guys can come on up. During the worship, we have um, prayer bowls. There's little slips of paper in the baskets. If you want to write a prayer and bring it up as an act of worship, feel free to do that. I mentioned last week how if you fold the prayers up, I won't read them. But if you leave them unfolded, I'll pray with you. So if there's something that you're seeking God's direction for and and you want to come and offer that before God, feel free. If you leave it unfolded, I'll pray this week for you as well. And you don't have to sign your name to it. You can do it anonymously. Why don't you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are the light of the world, that you do not leave us in darkness, but that you do want to shine a path for us, a path that leads us to peace. God, I thank you that your ways are not our ways, that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And the way that you work is often mysterious, but so beautiful and able to redeem anything we have done or that has been done to us. God, I pray we trust you and we trust your word. And I pray that you open our eyes to the clues you give us. God, just give us neon blinking signs so that we'll know your good path for us. Help us to be like Joseph who not only was confident and knew, but he also summoned the courage. God, sometimes we talk ourselves out of what you're calling us to do simply because we lack courage. So God, give us not only the eyes to see how you're leading us, but the courage to follow through. And thank you that your Holy Spirit is with us every step of the way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.